We are um, in the kind of the tail end of our series we've been doing this summer called Friends and Family. We're going to have Jeremy Beer. Uh, he's going to be sharing with us today. He's one of our teachers here at the at the academy, and uh, he'll talk more about his story. Before he was here in Las Vegas, he was actually on the mission field in Serbia and Eastern Europe for about seven years. And before that, he did some church planning. And uh, be, but be, right before he comes out, I just want to kind of cast some vision to us as a church because there are many people that are a part of this ministry. And um, there's a text in the book of Philippians where Paul is, he's writing to some people and he says these words. He says, I plead with Iodia and Sinchaichi that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And he says, yes, I ask you, my true companion, to help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest, and he says these words, the rest of my coworkers. And I want you to think about that, church, is, is um, we are all to be in the work of the gospel. We are all a part of the work of the gospel. And every time you see in scripture where people are working together for the gospel, you're gonna see this, this kind of one, one heart, one mind, we're all going in this direction. And so I want to talk about just just before Jeremy comes, just really the the importance of us of being united in that. We live in this city that they called Sin City, but I believe that God is bringing God's good news to Sin City to transform it, so that it doesn't have that title anymore. Instead, it's it's Grace City. It's God's grace just poured over the city, and I think He's doing that all the time through the different churches in this town. And so as you give to the church at Lake Mead, you're giving through the church at Lake Mead. And so every Sunday, we want to just kind of remind you about that mission work that we're all in. And as you contribute here, as you give to the, to the work of the ministry that's going out, it's going out through the academy here, it's going out through the wellness center, it's going out through our, just our direct involvement with our city. I just want to encourage you as members of our church to be faithful in your stewardship and faithful in that worship, that act of giving financially to the work of the ministry. So one of my coworkers, one of my brothers is coming to share with us. And I want us to give a warm welcome to Jeremy Bear as he shares God's word with us today. Thanks a lot, man. All right. Good morning at church at Lake Mead. It's good to see you guys. Uh, hopefully you haven't uh, got sick of me, led worship the last couple weeks, and now here I get to open God's word with you guys. Uh, it, but it's a, it's a pleasure. It's an honor to be with you guys here this morning. Um, so just to kind of, you know, let you in on my life a little bit by way of introduction, um, and also to try and kind of segue into some of the things that I'm going to be sharing with you, um, I just want to introduce kind of our story, uh, the Bear family, uh, and what that has been for a while. So, uh, you know, I came to know the Lord later on in life. I was 20 years old. It was 2002. It was the 2002 Olympics up in northern Utah, and that's where I'm from. And, uh, you know, it's in the, the LDS territory, and, uh, and I came to know the Lord about 20 years old. So a lot of habits, a lot of bad habits have been developed in my life when I came to know the Lord. Um, and my life, really, from that point on, has been characterized by a lot of different transitions. Transition, transition, transition. 
And so, you know, I came to know the Lord and, and I walked with him for like nine years, nine years in my life. I'm just getting to know Jesus, this, 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 this God who sent his son who loved me enough to die for me. And I was reading my Bible like crazy, never read my Bible before um, I was 20 years old. And now I'm just soaking it up like a sponge, wanting to know as much of him as possible. And about nine years goes by, and then the Lord kind of stirs on my family's heart, on my heart, and then a friend of mine, his heart as well, um, that I think the Lord might be calling us to plant a church in this area. And I'm like, well, I don't even know what that looks like. But, but he did, and I, and I pastored in that church for about five years. And then the Lord calls us to move across seas to Eastern Europe. Originally, you know, my family, me and my wife, we were like, well, yeah, I think the Lord is moving us on to plants again, but, you know, let's stay in the U.S. We're thinking Pacific Northwest. I mean, they, they need some churches there. And, and my wife was the one, so thank you very much, Stacy, who said, uh, you know, the world is a big place. Um, and, and God could just send us anywhere and, and, and so, Jeremy, don't get like this target fixation, like this is where we're supposed to go. And I was like, okay, maybe, maybe you're right on that. And as we prayed, the Lord opened up a door for us to go all the way, like almost halfway across the world to Eastern Europe, the Eastern Bloc, former communist countries. And we ministered in Serbia um, for five years, Hungary for two and a half years, but about seven years over there before God kind of wrapped things up and then called us back here to the heat of life. Las Vegas. And so we have had a lot of transitions in our life, okay? And I don't say all of that to say, wow, Jeremy, you're such an awesome guy in following the Lord. That's not why I bring that up. Um, I bring that up to say that my family is very um, uh, familiar with transition and just how disorienting that can be in every single season that the Lord has had us in. And so within those transitions, there have been these unique seasons really characterized by a deep and sometimes painful disorientation. And it caused me personally to really look at and reassess is like, what, what do I really believe? And coming out on the other side of those disorienting seasons with a more firm and solid faith in the person and the God of the Bible, you know, and getting to know him a little bit more. And so in each of those, those transitions, there were these seasons of disorientation. For those of you who came to know the Lord later in life, you know the disorientation I'm talking about, right? Like we've been, I was oriented around things that God was like, I don't want you to be oriented around that anymore. And now uh, at 20 years old, I've got this person, this kind of like intruding roommate into my life called the Holy Spirit. And he's like, you know, you've developed some pretty bad habits. I'm like, uh, yeah, now I see that. Thank you. And, and like a good physician, he's like, I just need to put the x-ray on your heart. I don't want to show you all of this. And I want to start changing your life. But that is very disorienting. You know, I didn't know my head from a hole in the ground, up from down, right from wrong, right? And the Holy Spirit is helping me along the way um, to reorient me around himself. And then he calls us to plant a church, equally disorienting. Not only am I dealing with my own stuff, <laughs> right? Uh, a, a new husband, a new father, but now I want you, the Lord's saying, to help other people with their stuff. I'm like, okay, this can be very disorienting to the degree that 
You know, even sadly, my, my good friend that I planted a church with, um, he went through uh, pastoral failure. I'm not going to get into all the details of that, but I can tell you what, it definitely made me go, whoa, wait a second. How did he get there? And, and I thought, I knew this guy, and, and it was very, very disorienting, and, and walked the church that I was pastoring over a two-year process of really just healing and, and just experiencing the presence of Jesus and trying to make sense of what was a chaotic, disorienting situation in, in leadership. And so after that, we moved to Europe, right? So now we're living in a country that is not our passport country, and just navigating the grocery store can be very disorienting. If you've migrated to this country and you are kind of like a first-generation new American learning English, you understand what I'm talking about, right? We had to learn a whole new alphabet, a whole new language. And actually, one of my friends that we were working with, she was an American missionary, moved over there a couple years after we did. Come to find out for about a month, she was eating what she thought was Greek yogurt. And I'm like, what were your taste buds telling you? She was eating sour cream, okay? <laughs> and this is because of the labels, the new alphabet that she hadn't quite learned yet being one month in the mission field. And we're like, no, 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 that's, uh, that's sour cream you're eating. She's like, oh, that makes so much sense. <laughs> We're like, this is very disorienting, isn't it? But all these transitions in life have brought with them very disorienting seasons. And I know that my examples to you might seem kind of extreme, but here's the thing. I know that I'm not alone in this experience of disorientation. I know I'm not alone in that. And I know that there are things that we face, even in following Jesus, that can seem very confusing can seem very absent of the presence of God. God, are you in this with me? There are things that we go through that are very, very disorienting. And so what I want to do with you this morning, really, it's just two things. I want to show you that the biblical narrative, the story of scripture contains chaotic and disorienting experiences. So I want to really just normalize for you these chaotic and disorienting experiences in our lives. Really, it's, it's one part of a process that God is doing in your life as a believer in Jesus Christ. And the second thing, I just want to look at Psalm 85 as a roadmap. How do we navigate these disorienting seasons? So those two things I want to accomplish with you this morning. So let's pray and let's get into the word of God. Lord, we thank you so much again for your goodness, God. We thank you for the powerful name of Jesus that we are singing about this morning. Your name is power, God. And in all these seasons that we go through, Lord, I'm so thankful, Father, that you made a way to be present with us. I'm thankful so much that we can look at the person of Jesus Christ and say, you will go to great lengths to be with us. I'm so thankful, God, that you experienced this, this disorienting world, God, in sin and corruption and all that it has, even to the point that you would experience death, the very thing that we fear the most. You came and you said, I will taste this and experience it for you and have victory over it so that you can live. And I'm so thankful you are working to reorient us around you, 
God, the very thing we were designed to do, you are doing. And I'm so thankful that you, you begin and complete that work. And so I just pray this morning that you would help us to even make a little bit more sense of some of the chaotic situations that we go through and give us some handles, some things to hold on to, um, to lead us through with you through these situations that we deal with. We ask that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So I was about two years ago, I was introduced to this concept of, um, you know, it's and, and it may come, come out like this general idea, but really it's the story of the Bible. It's this process of orientation and then disorientation and then being reoriented. And I was introduced to this concept by a guy, his name was uh, Walter Brueggemann. And I just want to give you this main quote where he says this. He says, our life of faith consists of moving with God. That's an important word right there. We're moving with God in terms of being securely oriented, painfully disoriented, and being surprisingly reoriented. And I love those descriptors that he says right there, right? We are, we are securely oriented. And sometimes that can mean for better or worse, right? Like we are securely oriented around things that God says, I, I actually didn't design you to find satisfaction in some of these things that you are oriented around. And I am in, in the process of working to, to pull those things out of your life. And that can be very, very painfully disorienting. But the purpose of God doing that is so that he can bring you into this, into his presence to reorient you around the person that you were designed to be oriented around in the first place. That's God himself, right? And so this process can be very, very crazy, right? So, um, you know, God's goal is our reorientation. And, and for those of you who have experienced this process, we can start by being oriented around something, painfully disoriented as he kind of is pulling that thing away and then reorients us. And some of you experience that reorientation, but life can feel like this sometimes, where as soon as you experience this reorientation, where you've been drastically changed through this process, then there's something else that's like around the corner in your heart that you're like, oh, great. Now I'm clinging on to something else that I've been oriented around. And God now begins a different work in addition to the already existing work that he's doing in your life, right? So it's kind of like this roller coaster that we go through, starting at orientation, going to disorientation, being reoriented, and then going right back into the orientation, disorientation, reorientation process. It can feel like this kind of figure eight roller coaster. And so this is, like I said, what I want to do with you guys this morning um, to show you this is normal, right? Sometimes all we need in the disorientation process is for somebody to share their story with us. And you're like, oh, <laughs> I'm not the only one, right? Oh, this is normal. But even more than that, I want to just show you that there is a God who stands over these chaotic, disorienting experiences with a plan. He stands over this with a plan. You see it in actually the very first two passages of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1. So that's where we're going to start just to show you this pattern. So in Genesis chapter one, we've all probably read it. If you hadn't, let's just hear it with fresh ears. It says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face 
of the waters. And you're like, wow, that's kind of an ambiguous um, picture. And you're like, where are you seeing this pattern of orientation, disorientation, reorientation right here in these passages? Well, first, let me just kind of key you into how the original audience who received this, um, you know, write, these writings of Moses, how they would have seen this passage. We with Western eyes, we can kind of miss it. But they would have caught it. When they read the, the, in the beginning, there was this God hovering over this deep face of the waters. They would have automatically felt something, saw something. They would have gone, those are the waters of chaos. Those are the uh, perilous waters. This is a problem. Okay, so for that time in their minds, they would be going, uh, our association with water is not safe. Our association with water is perilous. That's where people die is in these waters. And so it's interesting not to nerd out on you too much, but if you look at the original, um, like some of the uh, ancient creation accounts, like the Egyptian creation account, the very place where the people were rescued out of, right? People of God out of Egypt, Egyptian creation accounts, and later Babylonian creation accounts. Do you know what they have in common? There's water and there's war. There's water and, and there's war. In all of these creation accounts, there's some form of water, and a lot of times it's this chaotic water, and in their polytheistic way, that's the multiple gods they believed in, the powerful God would come in, and he would have victory. A lot of times it was bloody and brutal and barbaric in their creation accounts. Right? And so when they heard this, they're like, there's, okay, the God of the Hebrews is standing over the face of the waters. All right, what kind of war story are we going to get here over these chaotic waters? And you know what's really cool is what Moses is doing. He's not giving us a scientific record of creation. What he's doing is he's painting a more beautiful picture of how the God of the Bible stands above and is better than any other God that they've ever experienced. That's what Moses is doing. And they're like, how is the war going to unfold? And you know what God does? It's amazing in the first two chapters of Genesis. It's not this war in the way that we think, but he says, and God said. And he comes and he, and he brings his power with his word. And he creates over these chaotic waters that they go, this is unsafe. He brings land simply by his word, a safe place for them to put their feet on. So I was trying to look for a picture here it is right here. I was trying to look for a picture of like, what, what is it that kind of created in us? Like, oh, that's kind of what that meant, hovering over the face of the waters. How many of you guys look at this picture and you go, wow, that looks really safe, <laughs> right? Like I, I found this picture on Red Bull's website and it, I think it was like unsurfable waves, meaning like you can't surf this. If you go into this context, you will die. Okay, and actually the comment under the picture, it said, see that little barrel right there down at the, at the bottom of the screen? You see that? They said, that is six feet tall. That's like me right there. You know, if I, me personally, if I were to stand in that wave, I'd probably get hurt, right? But if you go into that, you're like, um, no, I'm not just going to go swimming, right? <laughs> if I do, I'm swimming with the fishes. I'm dead. And that's kind of what the, the original audience of Moses' writings were seeing over the face of the waters. There's a God who's standing over this chaotic, unsafe situation. And he's standing there with a plan, 
a plan to bring peace. And so we see in the very first pages of Scripture that God brings um, all creation into this oriented state around himself, even crowning man with this amazing title of the image of God, which in their minds they would go, wait, the only person that gets that title is the Pharaoh or the king. That title is reserved for him alone. And yet Moses is saying, no, 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 no. That title is reserved for every single person that God has created. You are a representative of God, right? And so God creates this, um, this peaceful place where people get to just walk with him in the cool of the day. And that's the experience of the first two pages of the Bible. But then it begs the question, okay, that sounds great, why does my life not look like that? That sounds great, but my life is kind of chaotic. My life sounds more like what you're explaining about the chaotic waters in the beginning that God is kind of standing over. And so that's the thing about these disorienting seasons is they should clue us into the fact that something is wrong in God's creation. Something is drastically wrong. And for those of you guys who have experienced death, you know exactly what I'm talking about. For those of you guys who are experiencing disease, you know exactly what I'm talking about. See, there is something drastically wrong with God's creation. And this is what happened. That man went from being oriented around the person of God, walking with him in the cool of the day, to then being completely disoriented because the presence of God to them was very disorienting. In Genesis chapter 3, we read about the serpent who came in, right? And the New Testament describes him as the devil who comes in and he tempts Eve. And he says, did God really say? Attacking the very thing that we saw in Genesis 1 and 2 is the power to bring change. And he says, did God really say? And Eve falls for the, she's deceived. And she's like, you know what? I think we can listen to this and we can decide for ourselves what is right, what is wrong, what is true, what is false, what is wise. It became a battle over human autonomy, that we can rule ourselves. That's what Satan was saying. Did God really say you can't eat? God knows if you eat it, you will be like God. You will know right from wrong. You can be the center of your universe. And they ate. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, it says, after they ate, the eyes of both of them were opened up. They knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And in a very, very sad picture in verse eight, they had heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and wife, his wife did what? They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They're, because of sin coming into this world, their first experience with God in this new state is the presence of God is very disorienting. And we're ashamed of what we've done and we are running from God. We are running from God. And this is the, the, where, where the narrative brings us. This is why we say, why does my life not look like the peaceful Genesis 1 and 2 that God created? It's because when sin comes in, every single one of us have been drastically affected by sin to the degree that we respond to the presence of God the same way Adam and Eve did. We run because it's disorienting. 
because he is good and we are not and we want to run away. But you know what's amazing? Even in that state, what do we learn about God in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2? That he stands over chaos and he says, I have a plan. And so this is what God does in response to them bringing sin into his creation. He starts his plan to reorient man around himself. And so the story goes that he promises he's going to send the seed of a woman into this world who is going to destroy the devil. He's going to destroy his works. And the seed of the woman who's going to come is going to reorient man around himself. You fast forward in the biblical narrative to Exodus chapter 6, and God has now created a large group of people through one man, Abraham, who was impossible for him to have kids, right? Talk about disorienting. And he works in such a way to create a family for this man, but says, your descendants are going to be slaves in a land not their own for 400 years. And so Israel, the people of Israel, the Hebrew people, are in slavery for 400 years. And God says, but yet I'm going to fulfill my promise and I'm going to send a man to be your deliverer. And that's Moses. And this is what God says to Moses. Go and tell the people this. One of my favorite um, sentences in scripture that God says he will do in Exodus chapter six, verse five. Notice all the I will, I will, I will statements that God says. He says, moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, this is what he's telling Moses, tell them, I am the Lord. I love that. He's like, I want them to know who I am. I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land. I swore to give Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you for possession because I am the Lord. Isn't that great? Right? Like you'd think like, man, that sounds amazing. If you were one of those Hebrew people who's been living under slavery from generation to generation to generation, and here comes a man promising to be your deliverer, you'd be like, yes, this is it. But and just like in Genesis 1, in that sad passage where they ran from the presence of God, we have another sad situation. In verse 9, what does it say? How did the people respond it says, Moses spoke this to the people of Israel, but they did not listen. They did not listen to Moses. Why? Why wouldn't they listen? Because of their broken spirit and the harsh slavery. These guys are so oriented around sin and chaos, the effects of sin in God's creation, being burdened by slavery to the point that they are so broken in spirit that when God shows up and says, I'm going to deliver you, they're going, that sounds too good to be true. That sounds way too good to be true. And for some of us, that's the same thing. We've been experiencing brokenness so much to the degree that when God says, I'm going to deliver you, you're like, I just don't know. I just don't know. And you know what I love about our God 
is that his ability to help is not contingent upon you saying, you can. And that's how the narrative goes, right? God doesn't just say, you know what? Fine, you're not going to listen to me. I'm out. He says, no, I will because I remember my promises. I will because I made a promise to Abraham a long time ago. I will do this. I will deliver you. But they are so oriented around this sin and slavery that as the story goes, that when God does bring them out, guess what it is for them? It's very disorienting. How many times did Israel complain in the wilderness against the God that delivered them? And they're like going back to their oriented state. Like at least we had like onions and leeks and stuff in, uh, you know, Egypt. Let's go back to our original oriented state. And God is so committed to their progress that he says, no, I'm not going to let you go back there. Right? I'm not going to let you go back there because I have a work to do. And it is, it is to reorient you around me. And so he creates the practice of the temple, right? He gives them this institution where they are going to be reminded all the time that sin requires a sacrifice of death in the slaughtering of a lamb. Even to bring them out of the land, what was it that they had to do? They had to slaughter a lamb and put the blood of that lamb over the doorpost so that they would be safe from the judgment that was coming, right? And this is the picture that God is going to go back to when Christ comes, the lamb of God who shed his blood so that we will be safe from judgment, from the judgment of sin, Right, proving that God is so committed to this process of reorienting you around himself to the degree that he would even send his son to die for you as the means by which he's going to accomplish this. But this is how the biblical narrative goes, guys. It's like God works really hard to bring some peace, and then we usually bring some chaos, right? Um, it, they went from this, this chaos of sin coming into the world to some sense of order as God creates the temple practices for them. And there's a whole bunch of, of um, Eden imagery in the temple reminding them that like, remember that sacred space I made in that peaceful Genesis 1 and 2 place? This is what this temple is all about, the peaceful presence of God. Right? And so there's some sense of order, but then what do the people of God do? They bring, they, they kind of circle down into chaos again to the degree that hundreds of years later, God would send a nation, the Babylonian empire to take them back into captivity, the very place that God took them out of. And he says, I'm going to let you go into captivity. And it was very, very confusing for the people of God. And that brings us to Psalm 85. Psalm 85, we're just going to skip the surface, okay, and give you three practical things, and then we'll close. I want to give you three practical things for how we navigate this disorienting season, because this is the context of Psalm 85, and there are three things that the psalmist does in Psalm 85. He's going to look back at God's redemptive work as an anchor during confusing, disorienting times. They were in captivity. They're like, God, what are you doing? They had to look back and remind God of his redemptive work. The second thing is they are going to lament in the present. They're going to feel all the feels. They're going to express all the doubts. And there's one thing we love about the Psalms, right? They are very raw in the way that they express human emotion. And he's going to lament in the presence. And then at the end of the Psalm, he's looking for God's finished work. He's looking for God to speak 
saying, I, I, I want to hear what you have to say about all of this, God. And God loves to speak. So real quick, Psalm 85, verse 1 through 3, it says this. The psalmist says, Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your anger. And I can't help but think that the psalmist is looking back to the Exodus narrative, saying, remember, you said you were going to do this. You were going to deliver us, and you did. Remember, God, that lamb that was slaughtered and put over the doorpost? Remember that you did this, God. And this is what the psalmist is doing during this disorienting season. He's looking back and saying, you know what? I don't know what you're doing presently, but I know what you've done in the past. I don't know what's going on right now, but I do know that you're good because look at what you did to provide forgiveness. Look at what you did to cover my sin. Look at what you did so that any anger that is towards my sin, you withdrew it all. And we look back and we say, Jesus, is he not the fulfillment of that? Right? Where we look back in Jesus and, at Jesus and say, he is that lamb that made it so that God is favorable to you. Any ounce of anger that God had towards sin, towards the world, that's you included. Jesus soaked it all up like water does a sponge. He soaked it up and it's gone. And this is what he's looking at. He's looking back at the redemptive faithfulness of God. He's saying, I don't know what you're doing right now, God, but I know that you're good because this is what you did in the past. And then the second thing he does, he laments in the present. Look at verse five and six. He says, will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Are you not going to do that? And you know, what's interesting. Does, he just said, um, are you going to be angry with us forever? But yet at the beginning, he said, you worked in such a way so that your anger is removed from us. Do you guys see that's kind of a contradiction? And now he's tempted to believe things about God that might not even be true. Are you going to be angry with us forever? And what this tells me is he's taking all of his feelings, all of his doubts, everything that's going on in his heart and mind, and he's just giving it to God. And he's saying, Lord, are you angry? What's going on? You know, and sometimes I think if, if as believers, when we hear people respond this kind of way, like even well-intendedly, we go, no, 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 don't feel that. No, 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 it's all good. Like God is good, right? And these are good reminders, but sometimes we just need to be people that go, just feel it. It's okay. You just let it out, right? One of the guys I worked with in Serbia, he used to love to say this, like, just feel the feels, you know? And I was like, thank you, man, like for not trying to just fix my whole situation and let me just kind of cry it out a little bit, you know? And that's God. God is that perfectly. He's like, just, just cry it out. Get it all out. Lament. Jeremiah did it a lot after the destruction, during an incredibly disorienting time. Go read that book and look how raw it is in emotion. And we need to be these kinds of people that just go, look, God, I'm just going to give you everything that I have. I don't know what you're doing. I look back and I see you're good. I don't know what you're doing in the present and that leads to the third thing that he does. 
He says, let me hear what God will speak. Let me hear what God will speak in verse 8. Let's just want to pause right there for a second. Let me hear what God will speak. And I think this is the nature of some of these disorienting seasons, is God is bringing us to a place where we are ready to hear from God. Because if we're honest, right, the presence of God can be very disorienting. And he, he in his grace and his goodness, will, will painfully disorient us sometimes so that we come to these places where we are ready to hear what he will say. Even about us, hard things, and good things, positive things, things that we learn about ourselves. He's, he's like, you know, I, you keep saying you're not as strong as you think you are. <laughs> and he leads us into situations where you're like, thank you, God, for showing me I'm actually like stronger than I thought I was. Right? Some of us are way more self-deprecating than God wants us to be. He's like, no, you're stronger than that. And he leads us into these situations where we learn about who we are. But he says he's looking forward to what God will say and what God will do. I just want to circle back for a second um, to, to key in on that, um, waiting for God to speak. During this season of lament, um, you know, Walter Brigham, and he said something that is, I think, pretty important about lamenting. He says, lament is, it's like a journey, like an exodus and a wandering in the wilderness, a constant temptation to murmuring and distrust, but an expectation of how God will come through. And that's what the psalmist is describing. I don't know what you're doing, but there's this longing and expectation you are going to speak. And there's actually, I think, the nature of this process, the purpose of this process. There's a term that secular psychology has for this. It's called the crystallization of discontent. And usually these seasons are characterized by being open to learning something new about yourself where you're finally ready to hear it. Right? This is a normal part of, of human growth, this crystallization of discontentment. And it happens when external circumstantial problems from multiple different angles over an extended period of time, they converge and it seems to contradict what we believe to be true. And God is saying, I'm giving you an opportunity right now to reassess what you think is true. And the result is a reorientation around God where we are more firm and more secure because we know through this trial, through this testing, through this disorientation, our faith is so rooted in what God has said and done, right? And that's God's goal is to reorient you around himself. But the psalmist is looking forward to what God will say. And I just want to finish that verse, 85, verse 8. He says, let me hear what, the, uh, what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people. So in the midst of the disorientation, he's saying, I know you will speak, God. I know you will speak to your people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. He's saying, please let this disorientation process have its effect in your life and be reoriented around the person of Jesus Christ. Be orient, oriented around him and him alone. And then two last things that I want to just, just, just say is this pattern of orientation, disorientation, reorientation. I think that there's no clearer place that we see it than in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In his work, what did he do? I want you to think about this with me for a second, and then we'll, we'll land this plane, guys, okay? 
We believe in a God who exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that second person of the triune God, the eternal Son of God. He was oriented around heaven, right? He existed as that second person for all eternity. As we read, in the beginning, God That was the second person there with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. And yet, because of sin and chaos that came into his creation, he decided, the second person said, I'm going to come into this disorienting, chaotic, sin-riddled, broken world. And I'm going to take humanity onto my divinity. I'm going to become a person. Think about this. The second person of the triune God decided to limit himself to taking on a body. And do you think that would be disorienting as a human being? Absolutely. To go, wow, I'm feeling things for the first time as a human being experiencing things as a human being. I'm tired. I'm hungry, right? I think Jesus got sick. Right? Like he experienced things as a human being that as the second person of the triune God, sickness was not in heaven. And he came and he took that on. Why in the world would he do that? If you and me were in his position, we'd be like, nope, I'm good. I'm staying here. He says, I came to do that so that I can be present with you during this disorienting, chaotic season so that I can be present with you and so that I can forgive you. And he went through this disorientation to the degree that he would suffer death, suffer injustice. How many of you guys have suffered something unjust? Like, this is not fair. This is not right. And it produces anger and sadness and all of that. And Jesus says, yeah, and I was murdered. No, really, like I I went through this for you so that I, I cry with you. I feel with you. I'm in this disorienting place with you. But you know what's amazing, and this just blows my mind, is that when Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, resurrected and rose from the dead and was exalted to the right hand of the Father, do you know how he sits right now? As a human being. Like this is insane that the second person, eternal in the past, eternal, I can't even say, anyway, he takes on humanity and then forever exists as a human being, he's forever changed. This is the process. And he's the forerunner saying, look, I'm going through it first so that when you go through it, you have me. And I can walk with you through this completely disorienting season, knowing that there is a goal in God's mind. The work will be done. The work will be finished. I want to close with this one passage, Kate. In Revelation chapter 21, we got to go to the end of the story. We started at the beginning of the story, and we've got to read the last ver- one of the last verses at the end of the story. The resurrection of Jesus Christ should key us into the fact that God is able to finish this reorienting um, work, reorienting us around the person of God. And he is going to create all things new And all of creation is going to be oriented again, once uh, again, to the person of God. 
right? I want to read this passage for you. And there's a line in it that it kind of doesn't make sense unless you think about what we've been talking about this whole time. Revelation 21 verse 1, it says this. John sees this vision. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. What? What is it? What does he even say? Why add that? Like new heaven, new earth. Yes, I'm into that. This old heaven and this old earth. Yeah, let's do away with this chaos. Let's do away with this. But why say, and the sea was no more? I want you to think back to the very opening pages of Genesis chapter one. God is hovering over the face of the waters and they would have seen chaos. They would have seen danger. They would have heard war. They would have gone, this is not safe. And yet what did God do in Genesis 1 and 2? He brought safety and peace. That's what he did. And when we messed it up, he still was committed to his plan. And he began this work of reorienting everything around himself. And what this is saying is in the new heaven and in the new earth, the sea, which is the chaotic waters, says it's gone. There is no more sea. I love the ocean, guys. Right? For those of you who love the ocean, you're like, what? The sea is no more. Like, I love the sea. I love the ocean. I don't think that's what God is saying. We're going to continue to enjoy the sea. But we're going to do it without the fear of chaos and death because it will be no more. That's what he's saying. So I just want you guys to know, you, you might be in this season. You might be going through the chaotic waters of disorientation. And I want you to go back and read Psalm 85. Use it as a roadmap. Think about what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ. And when you say, I don't know what God's doing, this is what I do know though, is that he's good. He sent his son to die for me. And in the disorienting season, feel the feels, give it all to God and look forward to what he's going to say. He will speak. He will speak. Look forward to what he's going to do. He will act. He will. And maybe you're in that disorienting season right now. And I just want to invite the people who are going to pray, the prayer team, you guys can come up. And right now, maybe you just need prayer. You're just like, you know what? Life has been really hard. (laughs) And you're going through maybe a sickness. The Bible says, if you're sick, come forward and let the elders specifically pray for you. But these guys, they'll pray for you. Jesus is our chief shepherd, the chief elder of our faith. And he will, he will intercede for you through these guys. So I would just invite you guys, if you need prayer, to come up and pray for whatever it is you're going through that is so disorienting. So I'm going to pray. And even as I pray, I just want to encourage you guys, really come up. Don't sit there. If God is saying, just go, just go pray with them. So I want to pray. You guys can come forward and receive that. Lord, We do just thank you for everything that you have done in the person of Jesus Christ. God, I'm just, I'm not up here just just speaking to the air, God. I'm speaking to people that you love. People that are suffering. People that are going through hard times. Lord, and people who are going through things that you're just simply trying to teach them more about themselves even to say, look, you're my child, you're my son, you're my daughter. Don't let sin and slavery have the last word in your heart and mind like it did in the people of Israel. I will deliver, I will heal, I will work. 
And Lord, I just pray for anybody going through the season right now, Lord, that you would speak. You would keep them, Lord, secure in Christ. Lord, so many people navigate this without handles, without the security of the blood of Jesus, Lord, and we want them to be secure in your love for them. So we do just pray for anybody going through this right now, Lord. We love you. We thank you for what you've done in Christ. Thank you for giving your son for us. We want to continue to follow you through, even through the painful situations you have us in trusting you, God. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, guys.